Uh, we begin this morning looking at the subject of the holiness of God. And I wanted to start here before we get to any other attributes of God, uh, because I think in a sense this is distinct from the rest. Uh, holiness is not so much one aspect of God's character as much as it is what it means to be God. I'm going to explore this <clears throat> a little bit more in detail. First, let's look at some definitions. Uh, the Hebrew word, let's see if this is up here. Okay, the Hebrew word is Kadesh, and it means its, its primary idea is separation. Okay, so it is um, basically the way in which God is different from us. I'll, I'll read this definition. Primary idea is separation, it connotes the essential nature that belongs to the sphere of God's being or activity, and that is distinct from the common or profane. Okay, so it is. It, God's holiness describes how God is different from everything else, how God is distinct, how God is elevated, um, transcendent might be a word you'd use. So holiness describes God's otherness. <clears throat> uh, the Greek word for holy, <clears throat> excuse me, the Greek word is hagias. <clears throat> see if that's up there. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the quality possessed by things and persons that could approach a divinity. Interesting definition. Basically, uh, the holiness of God is the godness of God. Um, so it, it is the way in which God is unique and distinct and set apart from everything else. So just, just looking at those two uh, definitions, you can see how the idea of God's holiness is so tied to his identity. Uh, Luke 1 verse 49 says, <clears throat> he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Excuse me for just a second. I need to get a drink. <clears throat> uh, God's name is holy, meaning that his identity is defined by his holiness. So holiness is what it means to be God. It, it describes the separation, the gulf that exists between God and humanity. Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So the Bible says that God is love. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. The Bible says God is just. God is righteous. But only one characteristic is elevated to the third degree. Only one attribute, if you call it that, is so definitional of what it means to be God that it's described three times in succession in Scripture. Isaiah 6, verse 1, a very familiar account. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That was 500 years before Jesus, uh, when Isaiah sees this vision, these six-winged uh, angels declaring constantly the holiness of God. Fast forward to Revelation 4, and, and John sees the very same thing still taking place in heaven. Uh, Revelation 4, verse 8, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
So God is love, God is merciful, he is long-suffering, but his primary characteristic that is so closely tied to his identity that it becomes his name at times is holiness. Holiness is the fundamental reality that God wants us to understand about himself. Ezekiel 39 verse 7, my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but there's also no other attribute that actually is constantly being ascribed to one person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's almost a part of his name. His identity is so closely tied to that. The profaning of God's name is an attack on his holiness. And it seems to me that the primary thing God wants us to know from Scripture about him and about his character is that he is holy. Now, let's define the word holy a bit more. Based on the use of the word in Scripture, holiness seems to imply two concepts. We've talked about the first one, but I do believe there's a second aspect to this. First is transcendence, and that's what we've looked at so far. God's holiness is his, his majesty, his otherness, uh, the way in which he is unlike everything else. The second concept implied in the word holy is purity or beauty. And this is normally what we think of when we use the word, uh, though I, I think it's the secondary meaning. R.C. Sproul defines holiness this way. Uh, primarily, God's holiness refers to his greatness and his transcendence, to the fact that he is above and beyond anything in the universe. He alone in his being transcends all created things. Uh, secondarily, the word holy, as it is applied to God, refers to his purity, his absolute moral and ethical excellence. Okay, so there's uh, two sides to the, the, the definition of holiness. One is the, the fact that he's set apart, he's distinct, and then the secondary aspect of holiness is purity. Um, so, and, and those are tied together. He is set apart from us in that he is pure and we are not. God alone is perfectly holy. He is transcendent above any created thing, and God is also the only morally pure being. So in both senses of the word holy, God alone is holy. Revelation 15.4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Because God alone is holy, he alone is worthy of worship. Okay, so holiness has two senses. Uh, primarily, it means set apart. Something is holy if it is set apart and above everything else, consecrated. And this definition, this definition of holy is used for other things. If you remember, uh, throughout the Old Testament, things are considered to be holy when they are distinct from everything else. They're different from everything of its kind. Uh, one example, the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, this is Moses, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The ground was made holy by the presence of God. That part of the earth was set apart from the rest of the planet because of God's presence there. The Sabbath in Scripture is called holy. And I think the same concept is there. It's a day that is set apart from the rest. It's one day in seven that's you set apart as a day consecrated to God. Uh, Exodus 16, 23, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. 
Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so you see the idea of one day being uh, consecrated and separated from the rest. Other things in, in Scripture that are mentioned as being holy or set apart, uh, the holy place in the temple, the holy linen clothes that Aaron and the priests wore, uh, the tithe is said to be holy. It's distinct from the rest of your income. The tithe is holy to the Lord. The censers, bread, vessels in the tabernacle, tabernacle and temple were holy. All of these things are holy in that they are set apart, separated from the rest. They were made holy because they were consecrated to God. And these holy things were not to be used for common matters because they were uh, special and unique. Uh, the nation of Israel is also said to be a holy nation. Now, certainly they were not uh, morally pure, but they were set apart from the rest of the nations as a, as a special people dedicated to the Lord. God did not choose them because they were holy, but in order to make them holy. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to set them apart as his distinct people. And then they were called to be holy in the secondary sense of the word. They were called to be purified and live morally upright. So the, meaning, the primary meaning of holiness is set apart, or in the case of God, uh, transcendent. And the secondary idea of purity is also contained within the definition of holy. Uh, we've looked in our preaching series the last several weeks at the model prayer. But the first line of the prayer is a request that God's name would be hallowed, which means recognized as holy. Uh, the HCSB translates that verse this way. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. In heaven, the name of God is holy. The scene we've, see, we've looked at already in Isaiah and Revelation shows us that the angels cover their eyes and their feet in God's presence as a recognition of his holiness. And we got to pray that God's name would be esteemed as holy on earth as it is in heaven. The world is never going to hallow the name of God until the church does. <clears throat> when you begin to understand the holiness of God, it should expose to you your sinful heart. Uh, this is a, a common reaction seen in Scripture whenever someone begins to understand the holiness of God is fear. Uh, we saw that in Isaiah 6. I, I didn't continue reading there, but when, when, when Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, the angel saying, holy, 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 his reaction is fear. He says, woe is me, I am undone. He's scared for his life to be in the presence of a holy God. So the holiness of God should cause humility and a sense of awe in God's presence. Now, I want to transition here to the way in which we are to emulate the holiness of God. Before we go, are there any questions on, on holiness? Okay. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are called saints. This is a common word, especially Paul uses, to describe Christians. Paul will often address one of his letters to the saints of a particular town. For example, 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so in that verse, you can see everyone who calls in the name of Jesus and has Jesus as their Lord, they are saints. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church has kind of redefined that word to mean a special set of select people that are above the rest. And that's not how the word's used in Scripture. Um, it just means a Christian. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are a part of his church, they are set apart and called to be saints. 
Now, I do want to show you this in Greek. Um, just to point out, I mentioned before the word hagios is the word for holy. That's hagios right there. It's also the word for saints. Same word. Um, so what you have there is it, it's, a, it's a plural adjective in this verse, but it's being used as a noun. Um, I don't know what, what we'd compare that to in English. I guess gerunds and participles would be the closest example where you can use a part of speech as a different, I'm, I'm not sure if that even works, honestly. It's a little bit different. But what you see here is it's the word holy being used to describe people. So you could translate this, if you want to translate it literally, it would be to, uh, let's see, to the church of God that's at Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holies. <laughs> so the word saints literally just means holy or holy people, holy ones. We who have repented and trusted in Christ for salvation have been set apart or sanctified positionally and progressively. Those are just fancy words to describe the two aspects of holiness that we talked about. So we are first set apart to God. Uh, we are called to be holy. We are called to be distinct from the rest of the world, a called out people to God. We are consecrated to him. And then we are called to live a life that is in keeping with that consecration. In other words, the second sense of that word, the, the purity aspect. Now, this is interesting because <clears throat> Paul addresses those in the church at Corinth as holy people in this verse. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth, uh, we wouldn't call them holy people. Uh, they were struggling with division. Uh, they, were, they were worldly. They were... Uh, immature, there was sexual immorality that was rampant in the church at Corinth, and yet Paul calls them holy ones, saints. And they're called saints not because they were already pure, but because they were the people that God had called to be set apart. The moral purity aspect of holiness comes after salvation when God's Spirit begins to work in the life of the Christian to make us more like Him. So holiness isn't first defined by uh, what we do and don't do, but to whom we belong. It's not just being separate from something, but devoted to somebody, namely God. Isaiah 57, 15, for those, uh, thus says the, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So God is holy. He dwells in the holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly. This is one of the wonders of salvation, that despite how transcendent and pure God is, He indwells sinners. And here we get to the Holy Spirit aspect of holiness. The Holy Spirit makes His abode in the hearts of unholy people. And it's because of the Holy Spirit living in us that we can become more pure and holy in that sense of the word. Romans 8 verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you are truly a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, we are positionally holy. We're called to be saints. We are considered holy ones because we've been set apart and consecrated to God. And then the New Testament commands that we begin to live out of that reality in our day-to-day -day activity. 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here you see the, the purity aspect of holiness. 
We are called to emulate the holiness of God. And essentially, that is simply the expression of the Holy Spirit who has indwelled us at salvation. So, in other words, the more we're living in, in keeping with the promptings of the Holy Spirit, we become more holy. Romans 8, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit confirms our salvation. I've heard that verse used often as sort of uh, God's Spirit will confirm in you that you're a Christian. That's true, but in the context, the way in which the Holy Spirit does that is by making you holy. So he confirms... He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, back to verse 14, if we're led by the Spirit of God. That is how he confirms that, is by working out in our lives his holiness. In Galatians 5, Paul outlines the difference between someone who has the Holy Spirit and someone who doesn't, and what the effect of having the Holy Spirit in our lives will be. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that is the lifestyle of a person who is not a part of God's kingdom. Verse 22, but the fruits of the Spirit, so this would be the evidence of a Christian who does have the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we who are God's children, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are called to live out of that reality. Live out what the Holy Spirit leads you to do and not do. And as we walk more in step with the Spirit of God, we become more holy in the sense of moral purity. Okay, so we are called saints. We are holy ones. We are saints positionally because we've been set apart to God. We've been consecrated to live in his service. And now we are called to live out of that reality of holiness in our day-to-day -day activity. Again, Sproul says, when we are grafted into Christ, we are renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is called holy in part because his primary task in the Trinitarian work of redemption is to apply the work of Christ to us. I'll pause right there just to say, in the Trinity, uh, which we'll talk about more in a few weeks, there are distinct roles with each person of the Godhead. So just think about redemption, which is what Sproul's talking about here. Obviously, Jesus' role, we understand that. He's the one who died as our substitute and, uh, and paid the price for our sins. Uh, the Father's role would be calling us to Christ, uh, electing us, whatever you think that means. Uh, the grace of God leads us to repentance. So that's the Father's role. The Spirit's role largely, you could say regeneration, but largely is post-salvation, applying in our daily living uh, what is true of us at justification. In other words, the main role that the Holy Spirit has in our redemption is conforming us to the image of Christ after we've been saved. That is his primary role, and that's, that's why Sproul says he's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us and through us. I'm sorry, I skipped a line there. He is the one who regenerates us and the one who works for our sanctification. The Holy Spirit works in us and through us to bring us into conformity 
with the image of Christ, that we might fulfill the mandate for holiness that God has imposed upon us. In our fallen state, we are anything but holy. Nevertheless, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are being made holy, and we look toward our glorification when we will be completely sanctified, purified of all sin. Uh, one more note on this. As we seek to imitate the holiness of God, uh, don't equate stricter rules with holiness. That's a common mistake in Christianity. We think to be more holy means uh, to live more differently than the world or to have higher standards. Okay, that's not necessarily true. Um, for instance, the word Pharisee means separated ones. The Pharisees were trying to be holy, and they thought the way to achieve holiness was to be unlike everybody else and to live at a higher standard with stricter set of rules. And some of us think that to be holy means to abstain from any sort of interaction with the world like the Pharisees did. They were trying to be set apart. Uh, but Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees were really good at appearing to be holy to other people. In the eyes of anybody around them, they would look at Pharisees and say, those are the really holy people. Those are the really distinct people. But they were hypocrites on the inside. They kept all the strict rules and they lived by high standards of purity, but they were like beautiful tombs. Outwardly, they looked good. Inwardly, they were full of dead people's bones. They were like dishes that, that are clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. So how do we become more holy as Scripture commands us to without becoming Pharisees? I think Jesus gives us the answer in verse 26 there. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So whole, true biblical holiness starts on the inside. That's why you notice the fruits of the Spirit are all attitudes, right? Love, joy, peace is all inward attitudes that then flow out in our actions. Uh, you can't become holy by just deciding, I'm going to start doing this every day. I'm going to stop doing this. That's not how holiness is achieved. It starts internally and works out into your life. For us to be holy begins with an understanding of the holiness of God. The clearer we see Him, the more clearly we can see our flaws. And then the change has to start internally. Christianity is not behavior modification. It's not a list of do's and don'ts to make you a better person. True holiness is achieved by listening to the leading of the Spirit and obeying what you believe God wants you to do. And that inward attitude of submission to the Holy Spirit is what leads to holy living. Uh, ultimately, nobody can be truly holy without the Holy Spirit. Uh, many of these Pharisees were simply unconverted. They were trying to live according to biblical rules and sets of uh, standards, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit empowering and motivating a life of true holiness. And so true holiness starts by submitting to the Holy Spirit. Questions on the holiness, holiness of God or holiness in our lives? Yes. 
Um, let me look something up really quick. I'm so bad with verse references, uh, but let me see if I can find this. <clears throat> yeah, 2 Corinthians 7. Um, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there because obviously I don't have this on the screen. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, the question was about the Corinthian church. Obviously, they were very unholy in their actions. That's what Paul rips them for in the first letter to Corinth. Um, so how do we explain that? If they had the Holy Spirit, why were they living like that? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, starting in verse 8. And here you'll notice that Paul in 2 Corinthians refers back to an earlier letter that he had written to the church at Corinth. There's some debate about this. Some people would say there's actually four letters that were written to Corinth, and he's referring to a different one. I think it's called the Letter of Tears or something. That's all a theory. Personally, I think it makes sense to say he's actually referring to 1 Corinthians. Uh, because if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is quite harsh in his tone. Uh, he tells them they're immature. He tells them they're, uh, they're, they're um, I'm forgetting the word that he used, basically worldly. Uh, that they're acting like babies, <laughs> that they should be at a, at a point of teaching, but they can't teach anybody because of how divisive they are, and, and he just rips them throughout the letter. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, which I think is 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So apparently his letter uh, cut them to the heart when they read it. They were very convicted by this, and Paul maybe thought for a minute, I don't know, maybe I was too harsh on them. Keep reading, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, so my answer to that question, uh, I think largely the church at Corinth was actually unconverted. Um, and I think there's evidence in, in these verses that Paul's letter convicted them, caused them to be sorrowful for their sin, and actually led to them repenting to salvation. So many of the people that Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians uh, actually were not Christians, and, and they were converted by, this, by the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions. Obviously, some Christians, for a period of time, can live unholy. We understand that. Um, but the type of rampant sexual immorality and things that were going on, um, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that those people were actually converted. Does that make sense? So that would be my my answer. I think, um, yeah, th there's more that could be said on that. But the short story is, I, I do think there were definitely some unconverted people in the church at Corinth. Which it's funny, people point to Corinth as uh, sometimes the the proof text for the fact that. You can still be a Christian and not live a holy life uh, because, you know, Paul addresses them as Christians, but they were living all sorts of sin. Well, obviously not the whole church was. There were unconverted people in the church. Every church 
of any sort of size probably has some unconverted people there. Um, so it's not that every single person in Corinth, Paul is calling a brother in Christ. And it seems to me, based on what 2 Corinthians says, that there's actually evidence that some of them were not. Any other questions? Okay. Um, I want to conclude with just a brief discussion of the transcendence and eminence of God. Uh, God is both transcendent and eminent, which means God is ontologically above and beyond the created order, but he's also present within and involved with the created order. I said a few weeks ago, I don't believe God exists outside of time. We had a good discussion about that, uh, but I, I don't believe he does, just like I don't believe he's outside of space. God exists in space, which is his eminence. But he permeates throughout all of space, which is his transcendence of space. We call it omnipresence. God transcends space, but he does so by being everywhere within space. So in other words, he's not just separated and above it and totally distinct from it. He permeates all of it. And I think the same is with time. He transcends time not by being outside of it and removed from it, but by being present within all of it. The Bible teaches that the trans uh, <clears throat> sorry the Bible teaches the transcendence and eminence of God, but different groups tend to hold to one to the exclusion of the other. Uh, think of uh, the Jews, for instance. The, to a first century Jew, transcendence was a given. Uh, God is holy. God is set apart, totally distinct from us. That's how they thought of God. So totally transcendent, not at all eminent. And this is one reason that the incarnation was such a stumbling block and still is to the Jews of this day. If you talk to a Jew and try to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, normally, my experience anyway, is their main hang-up is God could never become a human. That is unfathomable to a Jew, that God would take on human flesh because of the transcendence of God. He is so distinct from us. He is so separate from us um, that to think of him interacting as a human being is just blasphemous to them. That, that's what happens when you, when you exaggerate transcendence and just do away with eminence, that God is totally distinct from us. Um, in American Christianity, God is largely thought of as exclusively eminent. He is here, present, comforting us. Uh, it's very casual. God is our buddy, our friend, someone we hang out with. And the idea of God's transcendence is totally lost. I think a lot of times the way I hear Christians even approach God in prayer, uh, a little bit too casual. We can really become very comfortable with the idea that God is just like another human without a recognition of his tra transcendence. God is transcendent. He dwells in unapproachable light, yet he invites us to call him Father, and he even comes into our hearts. As Christians, if we would be biblical, we need to hold both of these concepts together in our minds. Isaiah 57, 15, I've referred to this a couple of times already, but I think it hits on both sides of this. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, that's transcendence, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And that's the eminence of God. So God is both eminent and transcendent. He's eminent in Christ, in the indwelling and loving presence of the Holy Spirit. But God is still God, and there's no one like him pure and righteous and powerful. He invokes awe and wonder. And so we must respect God, and yet <clears throat> God invites us into relationship with him as well. So before we leave this subject, just ask yourself, in light of all of this, why would you be tempted to place your affections, your security, your, your well-being in anyone other than our glorious God? 
that such a being as God, the God of the universe, invites us into relationship with him should always astonish us. Don't ever get used to the idea that the God who created you <clears throat> lets you talk to him in prayer. Uh, that should, there should be a sense of God's presence and the awe and wonder that is appropriate with that when we, when we enter God's presence in prayer. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is just gone right now. Um, before we leave, I do want to recommend this. I have a few copies on the back table. I'm going to order more. This is one I'm going to keep stocked. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, I told Malachi, this is probably the best book I've read in at least three years. It's fantastic. Um, Catherine will tell you, I started reading it one night before bed and stayed up until like 4.30 in the morning because I couldn't stop. Uh, but it is absolutely fantastic. In it, he addresses, I think, very powerfully um, questions in the Old Testament like the slaughter of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and, uh, you know, the story of, is it Uzzah that touched the... the uh, the Ark of the Covenant and was killed on the spot, things like that, that a lot of Christians and non-Christians struggle with. Uh, why does God just seem in the Old Testament to very angrily snap and kill people on the spot for the slightest offense? Um, Sproul does a very good job. I'm not going to give away his answers, but Sproul does a very good job addressing those things. So if you get a chance to, uh, feel free to grab that. As always, everything on the back table is free. Those are for you, but please read them if you take them. Don't take something and just uh, have it sit there. But if you if you would like a good book to read on the holiness of God, uh, R.C. Sproul's is excellent.